Have you ever felt like you're falling behind or that the programming world is moving so fast that it's impossible to keep up? Then there's the issue of where to go to make sure you're up to date. The answer is to join a community dedicated to discussing the latest in JavaScript. I mean, wouldn't it be nice if you got JavaScript Jabber all day? Well, you can, kind of. We've created a Slack community for JavaScript Jabber. That means that you can connect with our listeners and guests on a platform you're most likely already using. Plus, we've set up a Keeping Current channel that pulls stories from across the web to help you know what people are talking about. And coming soon, we'll be holding monthly webinars and roundtable video chats to connect with experts in the community and with each other. So come join us at javascriptjabber.com slash slack. Hey, everybody, and welcome back to another MyJS story. This week, we're talking to Corey House. Corey, do you want to introduce yourself? Hi there, guys. Yeah, I'm Corey House. I am a Pluralsight author and a software architect at uh, Cox Automotive. Also do independent consulting, focusing on React these days. That's keeping me busy since everybody seems to be wanting to talk about it. So that's me in a nutshell. Super cool. Yeah, and you've been a panelist on JavaScript Jabber for a few months. I have. Than that. Yep, I'm enjoying it. Oh, good deal. So, uh, yeah, we thought we'd get you on and uh, see if we could kind of tell people your story, let them know where you came from and how you got into programming in JavaScript. Sounds good. All right, so the first question I usually ask people is, how did you get into programming? Well, I was kind of strange. I mean, I was a business major and I was enjoying that, uh, but I knew that I also had a lot of interest in computers. I, I had always growing up, I was one of those uh, lucky kids that uh, had experience with all the platforms at a pretty young age. I was somebody who had a uh, very early Radio Shack computer. Uh, and I remember I had a friend across the street who had a Commodore 64. And then one of my other good friends had an Apple II. So on any given day, I was uh, monkeying around with uh, three different operating systems. And uh, for the longest time, that was just, you know, a hobby, nothing that I really saw that I I'd thought would be a career for me. But it was in college that I decided to double major. I was actually majoring in marketing uh, because I was interested in advertising, not really realizing that advertising and marketing are, are different things. But uh, nonetheless, I uh, decided to double major. And so I found myself in this odd position where during school, I was learning COBOL and Visual Basic and C++. But during the evenings, I was really interested in web development. Remember, I was I was in school in the uh, early 2000s, right when the web was really taking off. So it was a pretty exciting time. And uh, my interest at that point was Flash. I really, uh, for those that that didn't, <laughs> that were lucky enough not to be doing web development in the early 2000s, the, the thing about Flash that was awesome was you didn't have to deal with the pains of cross-browser usage, getting IE and Netscape to do what you wanted to do back then was really painful. And, and the story of JavaScript was, hey, if you made a typo, you'd just get an alert that says, sorry, you have a syntax error. You wouldn't even know the line that, that you'd made that syntax error on. So the, the dev tooling was pretty much non-existent at that point. Uh, and that's part of why I felt like Flash was going to be the future to the point that I really ignored the web platform itself early on and was a Flash specialist throughout uh, college and then early on in my uh, software development career before I uh, uh, shifted from there. Uh, I mean, it's it's funny because, uh, you know, back then I I made those decisions because I felt like, well, clearly we would, as an industry, we'd choose something that makes life easier. But uh -huh. since then, I think ever since then, I've recognized the importance of 
betting on the open web and the fact that it seems to continue to innovate uh, in a way that keeps it relevant. Uh, so ever since then, I, I haven't uh, gone down the road of the proprietary side. I've largely ignored uh, even mobile development because I like uh, the the open web and the constant innovation that we see there. Yeah, it's it's really interesting. You know, I, I remember, man, how long ago was that? It sounds like we went to college at the same about the same time. And mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, I remember the the flash. I mean, you you'd find it on all of these websites because it just gave you a different level of interactivity and um, you know user experience. And then yeah, it's interesting how things have changed. And now flash is the devil. It is. Yeah. Well, there was this little weird era where it was important to have a front door to your website that would often do some kind of a a flashy animation and play some music and then you'd click to enter. And I remember building those sites and and getting paid to do so. It at the time it made total sense to me. But it's interesting how we've shifted very much to the the opposite mindset of of minimalism and flat design and getting rid of uh, skeuomorphism and those sorts of things uh, are, are not just useful because it, it makes things simpler. It also just helps improve performance as well. We're not wasting time mm-hmm. on things that people don't actually need. The spurious has, has largely been, well, has really gone out of vogue, which uh, I admire. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, and it's also interesting. One other thing that I just like to kind of call out about your story thus far is just you mentioned that you had had a Radio Shack computer and that you'd played with it. But ultimately, I mean, we hear a lot of stories, right, where people are, oh, when I was eight years old, we got a whatever computer and and that's why I'm in computers is because, you know, I learned it as a kid. And it Uh sounds like there was some of that to your story, but your primary focus was actually business and advertising and not necessarily computers. And, you know, and you kind of came into, okay, this is something that I want to do. And Uh I think a lot of people just think that the people at the top of the field in programming, they just came in and they, they always knew they wanted to be a programmer and they had done it a ton as a kid. And so unless you had a total nerd fest from the time you were four, you just can't be a programmer. And I, I'm really trying to debunk <laughs> yeah. that because there are so many people that come into it these days and it's okay. Well, I was doing this thing and then I realized that where I really wanted to spend my time and make my money was in programming. Yeah, and it's interesting because uh, I'm a big fan of the book uh, Outliers by Malcolm Gladwell, and it uh-huh. tells that story of so often the people that end up being uh, standouts in their industry had a combination of luck, but also putting in a whole lot of time very early on. Yep. And I don't know. I think I think for me the all that experience with those different computers, although I wasn't sitting there writing programs. In fact, I didn't write any significant programs, although I coded in high school a little bit. My first significant program, I was 23 years old or 12. I was probably 21, 22 years old. And that was uh, working with with Flash and then also just doing coding uh, in college uh, as a I think I was probably a junior in college before I really started taking programming classes. So I was late on that front. But I think um, I think there's no denying there's an advantage to getting in early. But there are so many examples to people that started later and then just really made up for lost time. I think that that's definitely been me. What's driven me is one of my first jobs. I landed it really, I feel like in, in retrospect, in, in sheer luck, I just knew the right person and happened to hit it off and, and they helped me get in when I really 
I, I don't believe I was even close to the best candidate, but I felt very fortunate to be given a chance. And the thing that drove me was having all these people around me that were very clearly, they knew all this stuff off the top of their head that I would have to search for. And I really admired that. And I realized, okay, yeah, I'm clearly the weakest person on this team. And that's not a very comfortable position to be in. So right. let, let me see how quickly I can uh, teach myself to swim. So I found myself uh, reading in the evenings and practicing and, and you know, doing the work that there, there's no shortcut for that. But I, I, I did find that it was, uh, it was five or 10 years before I felt like I had um, crossed that bar where I felt like, okay, yeah, now, now I really feel like I can... Um, come onto a team and be a leader uh, rather than somebody who's um, constantly asking questions. It really, it takes a long time to get to the point that you feel comfortable, especially in in uh, a world where everything is shifting so rapidly. I, I, I found myself out of college, uh, and in fact, I come to think of it, this is probably true of a lot of people. You get out of college, you've gotten your degree, but what you realize is what they really taught you was how to learn. Mm-hmm. Um, because most of what I went through in school, I never touched COBOL. I never touched C++ again. I never touched Visual Basic. Uh, the only the only technology that I learned in detail that I continue to use is relational database uh, concepts. It was, um, But, you know, that there's this recognition now that the the most important skill that we, we need is the ability to, well, two things, to be able to pick a technology because there's constantly new things coming out. So you have to be very, very careful about what you pay attention to. And you Mm -hmm. have to effectively default to ignoring things so that you can be relevant in an increasingly smaller slice of this technology world. Um, And then once you can do that, then having the ability to teach yourself. um, I think that's what's really helped me is getting really comfortable with reading other people's code with manipulating it and then learning by example. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then finally in my last few years, deciding to teach others through blogging, through speaking at conferences and through Pluralsight. Yeah. There, there are a couple things there that, you know, I, I, that's the other thing is, and I felt this way when I was first getting into programming was I had some friends that just seemed to have this intuitive grasp of things that I just didn't and mm-hmm. a lot of people, yeah, they're, they're like, well, you know, it's, you have to kind of be a natural in order to, you know, be a good programmer. And mm-hmm. I don't, I just don't, I think now, I think the thing that I didn't see there was just that they were putting in the time, like you're saying, and that they had honed those uh, fine-tuned skills to know what to look for and how to learn this stuff quickly. Right. Yeah, it's, and I think that was, <laughs> it was very early on in my career that I, I was around somebody who was head and shoulders above anybody I'd ever met in programming. And I felt like he was one of those people, we were working in Unix at the time, and uh-huh. he he seemed to know every single Unix command and every flag that you could possibly pass to it just by heart and could instantly type all of this out. And I found that just fascinating in, in a way that I thought, I don't know that I could ever get there, but I find it it's inspiring to see somebody that has taken their craft so seriously and, and taking taken the idea of, here is my core tool set, and these tools uh, are really lifelong tools because there's very few tech, uh, technologies that you can learn early on that will truly be relevant for your entire life. But getting good at the Unix command line most mm-hmm. likely will still be useful decades from now. It, it's hard to imagine uh, Unix going out of favor at this point. Uh, it's just so mature and, and so ubiquitous. So uh, I think that's another really useful uh, thing that, that he taught me was – 
trying to find what those core technologies are. And in fact, that, that's why I'm talking to you today and why I like being a panelist on uh, JavaScript Jabbers, because JavaScript is another one of those things that's become so ubiquitous. I have a hard time picturing a world without JavaScript a decade from now. The, the JavaScript uh-huh. skills that I learned in the early 2000s have continued to make my life easier all these years later. But but yeah, I, I feel the same way. You know, I think I think JavaScript's one of those technologies to where if you really wanted to avoid coding in JavaScript, you probably can for the foreseeable future. You know, of course, web development, you have to have somebody else doing some of that because there's just some level of web development stuff that has to happen on the front end in JavaScript. But I mean, even then, you know, JavaScript is becoming a thing in IoT and VR and all of these other places. And then you've got single page apps where it makes sense to do those kinds of things. And it, yeah, it's, it's this huge area that's just uh, constantly expanding. And, you know, as much as people are excited about ES6 and ES7 or ES2016 and ES27, I don't know what the, the anyway, they're years. But whatever those are, you know, yeah, I mean, ES5 is still kind of a standard thing in the browsers. And I don't know if that is even going to go away. And in ES6 and mm-hmm. ES7, those principles still apply. So you're you're absolutely right. You know, picking those those ongoing useful tools makes a lot of sense. Yeah, it's something that I've also looked for in my jobs. Is uh, I'm I'm disappointed by how often I hear people in an interview say, "Well, I'm really excited to work here because I've always wanted to learn technology X, but my current job wouldn't let me do that." And I go. Well, I mean, you're always free <laughs> to learn these things. Nobody's yep. going to force you not to. I Now, I understand the whole I want to learn it on the job, and I can also appreciate some people just don't have the, the free time on the side. Sometimes mm-hmm. that's really hard to carve off. But I, I certainly look at in my own job, hopefully I have a fair amount of, of autonomy where I can help um, encourage moving into new directions and experimenting and trying new things. Because almost certainly if you're using a technology that's been out for a few years, there, there's probably something that's uh, objectively preferable in some specific ways that would allow you to, to sell it to your boss and try that new thing. Yep, absolutely. Well, let, let's get on to the next question because we've kind of talked our way around it a little bit. And that is, how did you get into JavaScript? Well, so my movement into JavaScript came uh, well right around the point when uh, Steve Jobs made moves to make sure that Flash wouldn't ever exist on the iPhone. I, I remember, you know, that being a very clear death knell yeah. for uh, Flash. And you go, okay, if it's not going to be there, it really doesn't have a future. And it was actually before that that I had started doing traditional web development in earnest because I was in a position where we were doing both Flash development and uh, traditional web dev. So I realized that I was, uh, I was being too close-minded that there there was a bigger world out there uh, to try. So uh, early on, I was building line of business applications um, and really enjoying that too, although continuing to feel the frustration. I remember when jQuery was finally released, thinking how amazing that was and how much easier my life was going to be after that, because I spent so much time trying to get simple DOM manipulations to work. And that was largely because back in that day, uh, before the time of jQuery, yeah, there, there were so many browser inconsistencies that I remember getting something to work and then going, okay, well, let's start checking cross browser. And you'd you'd think you were 80% done, but you were really just 20% done because uh, cross browser was so, so painful. Um, So I continue to feel, uh, I feel like life has gotten 
pretty luxurious um, since then. So anyway, I I found myself doing pretty standard line of business apps, and uh, I have since then gotten to do uh, more and more with JavaScript to the point now that I would have never guessed it, but I consider myself mostly a JavaScript developer, not just a front-end dev, but particularly focused on JavaScript. And I think that's one of the oddities of the new world here is a recognition that things are innovating so quickly now that it's becoming less and less realistic to be a quote unquote full stack developer. I mean, pe- people have thought for a while that the term full stack was uh, problematic because how far does that stack go? Uh, but I'm, I'm recognizing now that there is enough interest and enough uh, churn happening just in the front end development space that being an expert there can make you really valuable. Uh, and so that that's the direction I've headed in my current role. I went from being uh, full stack, working in C sharp, uh, working in JavaScript, uh, doing at the time we were doing uh, knockout and then angular. But since we made the shift over to react, I've decided just to be our front end architect, uh, which is a strange role that I think uh, just a few years ago, that would have sounded like uh, a pretty absurd thing to say. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but but as as client side development has has swallowed up much of the complexity that used to sit on the back end, that's that's becoming pretty realistic. And I see a lot of companies right now as I'm consulting that that are struggling with that very thing that are saying we have we have a hard time getting the front end right because we don't have anybody that's really focused on it. So I think one thing that a lot of companies could do is uh, either find somebody or take somebody who's currently doing uh, full stack work but interested in the front end and allow them to merely focus on the front end story and the innovation that's happening there because there's so much goodness out there in the open source community that every week I find new things that that can make our life easier. And the great thing is, we don't pay a dime for it. We just leverage this good open source, uh, these awesome open source projects, and life gets better. Yeah, I think it's interesting, too. I mean, it's funny because I've had these conversations with a lot of my Ruby friends, and they're still of the opinion that it's like, you know what, I just I don't see the need for all of this front-end craziness. And mm-hmm. so, you know, they're still doing server-rendered pages and you know, that are backed by the back end and then they just kind of plug in whatever they need, jQuery or what have you on the front end where they actually need it. And then, you know, we we have these other people, you know, that are more in a position like where you're in, where they've, you know, focused a lot of time and effort into becoming good at the front end. And, you know, I I get asked sometimes by both groups, you know, well, who do you think is right? And it's it's Mm -hmm. kind of funny to get to the place where it's, you know what, I think I think both groups are right. I think sometimes the, you know, using something like Angular or React is probably overkill for whatever you're doing. And sometimes mm-hmm. it makes a ton of sense to have a single page app and just really nail the front end the way that you want to in your application. And so, you know, I, I definitely see where you're coming from with your point of view. I don't know that it's necessarily, you know, the, the case for every case on the... Uh, on the internet though. So, yeah, I think part of it comes down to what, what has pushed things in that direction is the, the whole service oriented architecture movement that once I have a set of services set up, it becomes a lot more realistic to just go ahead and mm-hmm. turn on a front end. I would say if there were 
a good set of services there. I'm not sure that I could build that set of services any faster using a server-side framework like Rails uh, or, or Django or right. uh, ASP.NET MVC than I could in React today using something like Create React App. Because in either case, I've got to spin up a front end. I have to write the HTML. Um, but those, those models, the front end has gotten mature enough now that I don't feel like I'm giving much up. And that's a strange place to be as someone who, who really enjoys uh, also, I'm a Microsoft uh, stack developer, so I've, I've enjoyed working with ASP.NET MVC, uh, working with Web API, Visual Studio is a really nice experience. Uh -huh. But I don't feel like I'm giving much up anymore uh, sitting in VS Code working in JavaScript because I have the testing story has gotten um, very mature. The uh, the the beauty of hot reloading, of hitting save and instantly seeing my changes, not waiting for a compilation. Right. Uh, and then that whole whether you're in Angular or React or Vue, having this component model of being able to nest different ideas together, really, it, I find that I get to reuse a lot of code in that space mm -hmm. in, in ways that I typically didn't do when I was doing server-side development in uh, ASP.NET, MVC, or web forms. And, and maybe that's partially because the the stories for sharing code are just so good today in JavaScript that NPM makes it so painless to stand up a new package that uh, I don't know. I, I think that's to me, that's what it largely comes down to is if you are planning to create an API, then it becomes a lot harder to justify uh, using a server side rendering stack. And since so many people are using uh, APIs now or creating APIs or already have them at this point it becomes a pretty logical move to go client side. Yeah, I think you're right. I think in some ways, though, I mean, if you're comfortable in a certain paradigm, I think it makes sense to stick with that paradigm, you know, and then, yeah, go out and learn some of these other technologies, some of these other ways of doing things, and then see where things apply, see where things make things easier and where they don't. Um, yeah. But yeah, I think, I think the idea that the front end is going to move more and more to take over sort of the overall uh, application development on any of these apps and the, the back ends will become kind of these supporting roles as services and APIs. I think that's going to be more and more of a thing. And mm -hmm. so I, I really do believe that it's going to be interesting over the next few years to see what the capabilities are uh, for the web platform, especially when we move into things like virtual reality. So we have like web VR and, mm -hmm. uh, you know, different areas like that where it's new technologies coming into being. And then essentially what we have is we have these back ends that need a high amount of compute power because they're processing large amounts of data or performing other functions that we now currently lump in with artificial intelligence. And so I, I think the back end is going to move more toward those kinds of things and the front end will move more towards the overall experience and display and um, the ways that we interact with things. And I don't know that the web browser is even going to continue to just be an HTML platform. I really think that a lot of the things that we're seeing with WebVR, for example, and, and just some of these other capabilities with, with canvases and SVG and, and the ways that people interact with things on their phones and see the world through the lens of whatever we call the web, uh, I think that's going to change. And I think it's going to be really interesting to see what JavaScript's role is in all of this and where the frameworks like React and Angular or the next generation of those are going to take us with regards to all of these capabilities that the browser is going to give us. 
Yeah, it's, it's really hard to picture what Dev's going to look like in, in 10 years. Uh, even five years is, is very hard to predict. Uh, I, I find it interesting. Right now, I've been really fixated on this uh, reusable component story. And I, what you talk about there, like thinking about how I could share code between my traditional web app and my native app and potentially some, some VR app as well, that I feel like is another story that I hope to see fleshed out more in the coming years. Uh, I mean, we have we have this whole reusable web component story, but we haven't seen that that standard take off like I hoped it would. So it it's, continues to frustrate me that I, I go to these conferences and I think about all the different things that we've built and our inability to share our innovations with each other when it comes to it. Well, if it involved HTML, there's probably <laughs> there's a very, very low chance that you can hand me what you built and I can put it to use on my application. It would it would end up having to be, OK, you and I chose the same front end framework, the the same sort of bundling stories. We have compatible views about how we view styling. And yeah, so, so that piece is a big open area that I'd love to see. Uh, solved in the next few years. Yep. So uh, I kind of want to get into this next question, and that's, you, you know, you've talked about Pluralsight a little bit mm-hmm. and some of the other things that you've done. What, what is it that have you done in JavaScript? What what contributions do you feel like you've made to the community? Well, my most popular open source project was uh, React Slingshot, uh, which has been out there since the fairly early days of React. And uh, what I was solving was the same problem a lot of people felt in React, which was, React isn't very opinionated. React is a way to write reusable components for the web, but it doesn't have any opinions about how you do testing, how you structure your files, how you minify, how you bundle, uh, how you deploy, uh, how you do API calls, and, and the list goes on and on. So I was sitting there at work recognizing that one thing that really wasn't tenable was for us to just tell everybody, hey, go use React, and then all those things I just mentioned, go go decide on your own. We certainly didn't want every delivery team going in and making their own decisions and, and making a bunch of bespoke applications with completely separate opinions in this area. So I created React Slingshot as a development boilerplate, a very opinionated way for us to do React development. And that worked out really well. We uh, uh, put it to use on multiple applications and it was nice. I mean, I, I put a lot of work into it and it became popular because at the time when I released it, there there wasn't uh, many options quite like it where you could literally just go in and say npm install to pull in dependencies and say npm start and it would fire up a web browser for you. It would watch all your files. It would run your tests. Every time you hit save, it would do hot reloading. It included a working Redux application built in with all of the, the example code there. So people could really get started very, very quickly and they wouldn't have to spend the I literally spent months learning all of this to get it to work in a way that I felt like was uh, reliable and and scalable. So but you fast forward a while and I was far from the only person who had this idea. Today if you go out and search around you'll find there's over a hundred React boilerplates uh, out there that are doing similar things to to what I've described here and the most popular being create react app, um, which I highly recommend. Facebook's done a, a wonderful job on it, uh, with really covering uh, essentially the same story that I had, but a, a lot of other uh, little things that they've added in that I haven't even listed here. So that's, that's my most, um, significant contribution uh, as far as stars go. But, um, I will say I've, 
as far as open source goes, the place that I often contribute is, strangely enough, in documentation. Uh, I tend to find when I'm reading documentation and I see it deficient, I often read documentation in the markdown view so that I'm literally editing the documentation as I read it. And in that way, I'll just put in a pull request when I'm done, and usually there'll be a half dozen things that I put in as I was reading the docs to help improve it. And I feel like if more people did that, then documentation would uh, radically improve over time if we're all just making documentation a little bit better as part of our way of saying thank you as we've used some open source project. Yep. So what, what are you working on these days? Well, so these days I just uh, I just finished my seventh or eighth Pluralsight course, which is on creating reusable React components. Uh, this has been on my mind for the last year or so because at work we've created our own uh, reusable component library. And I just came to realize that it's a wildly complicated um, process that I didn't think was that that hard. Uh, but what you have to step back and realize is all the decisions that you make um, – in, in order for your, your company to have a reusable component story, you have to bake in a lot of decisions. You need to decide how granular to, to make your components. You have to think in terms of uh, how are we going to create uh, reusable styles? How will we package those styles into our components? How will we distribute them? Where will we host them? Uh, and, and also, what even is our simple model of contribution? Will we run it as an open source project? Will we run this as a sort of closed source project, which I find is an interesting idea? This is the idea of basically having uh, creating a reusable component library, but treating it like an open source project that's actually managed in-house. So nobody public can get to it, but otherwise it's treated like an open source project. Anybody in the company can submit a pull request. Lots of different people can feel vested in the project and help contribute to its success. And that's a good way to help get things rolling. So that's a model that, that we've found really useful. The, the piece that I found uh, perhaps most challenging was creating a good documentation story and recognizing that if you create reusable components, uh, one thing that's really important is having solid documentation that shows how to use them, shows what knobs and switches you're providing, ways for people to toggle data and get different behavior. So I spent a lot of time looking at dozens of different open source React component libraries and seeing how they did their docs. Finally came up with a way to generate all the documentation using a combination of different open source uh, projects, which is pretty cool because now our setup is we create these React components. Um, we put some comments in that are a lot like JS doc style comments to describe the properties that they uh, they have described the examples that we uh, have created. And then all of our documentation is just generated automatically. Uh, so we don't have any kind of worry about our components and the documentation itself getting out of sync. I'm sure that's bitten many people before where you <laughs> yeah. say, okay, yeah, we updated the code, but we didn't keep the docs updated. So I'm a big believer that your documentation should be generated automatically. And that way, everybody's assured that it represents the real world. Yeah, I mean, uh, that's that's definitely something that I think is a universal problem with documentation, um, mm -hmm. especially if it isn't generated automatically. But yeah, the the way that I usually see docs generated automatically is uh, basically comments right on the function or method in the code. Yep. And so those comments get out of date too. 
They certainly can. That that is true. That's a risk. Uh, uh, that's a risk with our setup. I think it's <laughs> probably as good as you can get, though. I yeah. don't know how else. You've got to have some kind of human readable verbiage above these things. So um, I've found in code reviews that's that's what we look for. Uh, that's one of the things on our checklist. And, and as a side note, that's something I found really useful is creating a pull request template. So uh, you can go into GitHub, assuming you're using GitHub, and create a file called pullrequesttemplate.md. And then every single time somebody generates a pull request, that template will populate the pull request. So oh, what nice. we've done is we've created a checklist uh, that contains about 12 different things that we look for in a code review. So things mm-hmm. like... Hey, you've, if you've created any new components, you should have a test for each one of those components. Mm-hmm. Uh, your, your components file name should start with a uppercase character. We look for, uh, things like, Hey, is there a ticket open, uh, that's tied to this work? All, all the, the sorts of basics that are easy to forget. And of course, one of those other things would be, have you reviewed the documentation to make sure that it's, uh, rendering appropriately, that it still represents the, the real world, that those comments are updated. Uh, because you're right. Uh, if if it's not on a checklist, it probably won't get done. Mm-hmm. It's really easy to overlook. Yeah, I think that's really the the answer to a lot of the problems that we run into in software in general. And and I think this also ties into the conversation about documentation because documentation is one of the things that sort of gets ignored a lot of times. Mm-hmm. And I feel like process, right? Just having a process, a standard process, and it's more important for us that you follow the process than that you get it done, you know, an hour <laughs> faster, right? Yeah, and, sad and so, but true. And, but if you have these processes in place and it's, it's this is the expectation that you're going to do things this way, it makes a lot of that a lot easier. And in some cases, especially on open source, it's like, well, I just wanted to deliver the function. I didn't want to do the other things. But if you just make that part of the overall process for doing it, yeah, it makes a lot of sense to just, okay, here you go. You're going to commit this. Did you do everything that you had to do in order to make it a proper commit? Right. Yeah. The, the other thing that we've done that is really useful uh, when you're thinking about reusable components, it's very helpful to have your documentation effectively be your development environment. So when we create React components, the first thing we do is say npm start. And what that does mm-hmm. is it loads up our documentation site. So the assumption is if I'm working on, say, a text input component, I'm going to click on the text input component within my documentation site. And now I'm seeing a live view of my documentation showing different examples of that text input working. So every time that I go over and I make a code change and I hit save, my documentation instantly Mm -hmm. hot reloads that change. So in that way, you're helping keep your documentation very front of mind. And that helps avoid that that out-of-date problem that, that can often happen. Yep, that makes sense. Now, one other part of your background that I want to dig into here a little bit is you mentioned that um, you worked on projects that kind of went from, or not kind of, they did. They went from Knockout to Angular to React. So what mm-hmm. is it about React that made you go, oh, this is this is the stuff right here instead of Angular or Knockout or Vue or Ember or, man, I could go on and on with the list of frameworks. <laughs> but, but what is yeah. it about React that, that is the big payoff for you? Yeah, so I can, I can sum up uh, why React in a single sentence, which is that in React, you're... HTML sits within JavaScript, and that is the only library that I've found that has this model. 
Now, what I just described would sound like a horrible thing to a large group of people. Uh, <laughs> the most, and, and frankly, every time that I introduce React to people, I expect them to have this visceral reaction early on of saying, well, why in the world would you want to mix your HTML and your JavaScript? And I say, well, at first that sounds awful. But in fact, all these years, what, what I see as a, a common problem right now is people thinking in terms of separating concerns based on file type, based on technology. And React doesn't make me think that way. React makes you think about separating concerns in terms of components. And I believe that components are the future. Uh, and, and I say that because you look out across any industry that's gotten mature and the way that they have matured is by creating higher and higher level reusable components. You look at a automotive manufacturer, they're not out there thinking in terms of nuts and bolts. They are sourcing large assemblies. They're saying, for instance, you look at Nissan. Nissan doesn't go in and deal with transistors and capacitors to be able to build a CD player. They say, hey, Bose, send us a head unit that has all of this in one big package. That is a reusable component. And in fact, they'll take that one stereo and they'll plop mm -hmm. that stereo into multiple models. And what gets me excited is we're at this point today as front-end developers. Uh, in, in my job, we are continuing to create higher-level reusable components. We started out with the simple things like saying, you know what, the way that we do forms is completely redundant. Uh, we know that there's going to be a label above the input. We know that if the, the input is required on a form that we should display a red asterisk by it. We know that there should be an error that displays right below that form input. So all of those opinions shouldn't be something that resides in someone's head. They should be something that is encapsulated within a reusable component. So nobody has to remember any of those things. So in fact, on at our team, we don't allow anybody to use a plain uh, label. We don't allow anybody to use a plain input tag because we have a higher level abstraction called a text input that bundles all of that together in an opinionated way that makes sure every one of our form elements looks the same, operates the same, has baked in validation right there. So no one can, can really make that mistake. So th that's what really gets me excited about this component model that React provides is being able to think of my application as a lot of different nested components. And now given, you can create components in Vue, you can create components mm -hmm. in Angular, you can create yep. components in Ember, but the thing that makes React special to me and the thing that I believe other people should start copying is this idea of commingling your markup and your JavaScript using something like JSX. Because when I say mm -hmm. that React puts your HTML and your JavaScript together, you're not actually writing HTML. You're writing JSX, which is in fact just sugar that uh, it desugars down into plain JavaScript calls. And those JavaScript calls to React.createElement are what ultimately create that HTML in the browser. But that little change is why React is fundamentally simpler to learn than something like Angular or Knockout or Vue. Because in React, if I want to map over an array of values, I just use JavaScript's map. In React, if I want to conditionally say if this, then this, then I literally use JavaScript's if keyword. Whereas if I were in Angular, for instance, I would say ng if. If I were in Knockout, I would say uh, data dash if, these sorts of things. So what you realize is 
almost every time that you're working in React and you need to do something, you just use JavaScript. You don't learn any special framework-specific way of doing these things. And that's that's why I found I can teach uh, a, a team React in less than a day. And I've successfully done so. I was just in London a couple of weeks ago and we started at nine in the morning at two in the afternoon. I said, okay, big announcement, everybody. Congratulations. You now know React. And that's, that's pretty awesome to be able to say that in that short amount of time. Now, given I'm not saying they're an expert, but that small API means there's just not that much surface area for me to cover for you to know the basics to build a real app. Yeah, that makes sense. I can tell you in Angular 2 and 4, things have moved a lot in the direction that you're talking about. But yeah, it, it is. And it's, it's, it's actually really nice to have the exact capabilities you're talking about in some of these cases and things close to it in other cases, you know, as I've kind of come into learning Angular better. But yeah, mm-hmm. React is definitely on my list of, of things to learn. And again, it comes back to our conversation earlier about, hey, look, you know, you know, stick with what you know, but then go find out what else is out there. The the other thing is, is just, again, you know, the, these components map across all kinds of technologies. I mean, you know, React Native, for example, it's it's the same idea, except it's not HTML. And, yes. you know, it's, I mean, that, that kind of thing is really exciting to see as far as where we're headed. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I agree. So, yeah. So the last thing that we're going to talk about here is, is picks. This episode is sponsored by Newbie Remote Comp. Newbie Remote Conf is a two-day, completely virtual conference hosted by none other than Charles Max Wood. If travel expenses are an issue or you just can't afford to be away from home for two days, then join us. It's virtual. This conference is focused on people who are new to programming who want to learn what the pros know or just get a leg up in getting a job and getting into the programming community. We'll have speakers from all over the programming community to help you stay current and a Slack room where you can connect with speakers and other attendees in real time. We'll also have a live roundtable video chat for attendees and speakers. Plus, we'll provide the talk recordings to you within days of the conference. So you have some picks for us? Yeah, so I guess my my first pick would be if you're interested in React, go out and check out Pluralsight. I have uh, three courses out there, soon to be uh, another one on reusable React components. It should be live, by, I imagine, by the time you publish this, since it's supposed to go live in the next few days. And I really appreciate feedback. I've really enjoyed doing these courses. It's a huge amount of work, but also a lot of fun. The other pick that I'll put in, and this may have been a pick of mine on JS Jabber, but it's a book I've, that's so good I've been rereading it recently, a book called Essentialism. Uh, I believe (laughs) any JavaScript developer should read this because we are living in a world where there is too much to keep track of. And I sit here plugging my courses, knowing full well that there's a ton of other ways that you can go learn these things. And frankly, the hard decision you have to make is, what do I want to pay attention to? And I love the essentialism. This whole book is about recognizing that if you don't set your priorities, someone else will set them for you. So you need to be very, very careful about what you what you think matters and have a real sense of clarity about what your values are uh, in a world where we are incessantly bombarded with opportunities to watch something new or read something new. Yep. Um, I'm just going to piggyback on that a little bit. I have a section in my Get a Better Job course that should be released here pretty soon as well that's about keeping current because I get asked that all the time. How do I keep current? Or I'm, I'm trying to find a new job or I want to, you know, I want to stay current so that I can find a new job if I need one. You know, wh- how do I how do I keep up on things? How do I know what to look at when there are so many things coming out? And yeah, it's 
it's an approach just just like what you're saying. It's like, well, look, you know, where do you want to wind up? What are the outcomes you want to want to have? And then from there, you can start saying, okay, well, then I don't have to care about this. I don't have to care about that. Mm-hmm. This is something that's interesting. And so you prioritize the things that matter and you can deprioritize the other things so that um, the most important things are the things that float to the top. And then you pick exactly. the top priority and go for it. Yeah. Good stuff. So where's your course? Did you say it was on uh, YouTube? So it's uh, getacoderjob.com. And people can go and sign up for um, the mailing list and get information as to when it comes out. Um, I'm probably going to open it up for another handful of people to get in on the beta, which means they can get it for like half price or better. And that's just based on I have the videos up. And as we speak, I have most of the videos up. By the time this goes out, I have all the videos up and I'm just fine tuning the course. And so I'd like a little bit more feedback than what I'm getting. So anyway. stuff. Yeah. So, so lots of stuff there. And then, uh, since this is my angular story, even though we talked a lot about react, um, I am putting on angular remote comp and that's going to be in, in August. So if you're interested in that, uh, go sign up. Um, we should have speakers and stuff listed pretty soon here. And, um, one other thing is, is that I am working on pulling things together for a Kickstarter for a react podcast. Now, this isn't something that I necessarily will be a co-host on, but I have a lot of people asking for it, and it seems like if I can be, um, how do I put it, an animating force behind it and help, <laughs> help get people involved, you know, so I get the hosts out, out there, help them get a schedule together, help them start finding guests, and then just handle all the production on the back end and hosting, it makes it a lot easier to get something off the ground. So keep an eye out for that. I'll have a link to it in the show notes when I have it up. Awesome. I'm glad to hear that. That'd be, uh, if nothing else, that'd definitely be something I'll be listening to. Yep. All right. Well, if people want to see what you're up to, you know, keep tabs on what you're talking about or anything like that, where do they go, Corey? You can find me on Twitter at HouseCore. I tweet about JavaScript, React, and general software development pretty darn consistently. I'm on there way too often. So that's the best way to find me. Awesome. Well, we'll go ahead and wrap this one up then. Thank you for coming. Thanks for having me, Chuck. This was fun. All right, we will have another episode out for you all next week. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more.